All right, folks, we're moving right along. Not more of a pivot, more of a transition to discussing Russian propaganda. I'm happy to introduce Brian Whitmore for this, who will be moderating this panel. Brian is a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center and a professor at UT Arlington. He's also the founder and author of the Power Vertical blog and host of the Power Vertical podcast, which focuses on Russian affairs. So whenever we have our moderator and panelists ready to go, take it away. Uh, okay, good afternoon, everybody. Um, my name is Brian Whitmore. I'll be moderating this panel. And with me is Daniel Galpadovich, um, who is a correspondent with Voice of America, previously a correspondent for my colleague at Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, and prior to that, a presenter and a correspondent at, BBC, at the BBC's Russian service. And uh, Daniela informed me this week that we actually met for the first time Back in the spring of 1996, um, we're both showing our age here. Uh, We were both correspondents at that time covering the St. Petersburg mayoral election. Um, when Anatoly Subchek lost his bid for re-election, that election turned out to be very, very consequential because Anatoly Subchek's deputy was this obscure figure who some of you may have heard of named Vladimir Putin. And after Mr. Putin's boss lost that election, Mr. Putin went to Moscow, and the rest, of course, is history. Um, that was 27 years ago, so we're just, uh, for, for those of you who are, are counting. Um, this this p- panel is on piercing the armor of Russian propaganda. And I, I gave a lot of thought to how to frame this. And I want to start out just by throwing out three problems I see in combating not just Russian disinformation, but anybody's disinformation. And then four battlegrounds where I see this playing out. The first problem is the problem of traditional journalism. Um, And like, you know, pardon my French, but as somebody who worked as a journalist for a long time, traditional journalism has a really hard time dealing with bullshit. It really does. When the other, when one side is lying constantly, and putting out disinformation constantly. And yet your job as a journalist, or at least you think your job as a journalist, is to tell both sides of the story. Well, this creates a problem in, in, in terms of this. And, I'm, and it made me kind of really rethink the way I pro- approached journalism when I was practicing it. And it caused me to rethink how I approach journalism when I'm no longer practicing and more of a consumer of it. So that's the first problem. The second problem is the problem of whack-a-mole. Um, when one side is putting out so much disinformation and we get into the business of debunking, we're playing this game of whack-a-mole that you could never, ever, ever win. And one of the things I always pre- impress, uh, impressed on my reporters when I was an editor and when I was a reporter myself is that we need to be focusing on meta-narratives and not on micro-narratives, not not playing this game of whack-a-mole, but identifying the meta-narratives that your adversary is putting out there and debunking those. Um, So that's the second issue. The third issue is the problem of an ecosystem. Uh, Disinformation and propaganda doesn't operate in a vacuum. It operates in an ecosystem. Russian disinformation and propaganda operates in something I call Putin's dark ecosystem. Um, Putin's dark ecosystem is a world in which corruption is weaponized and uses an instrument of statecraft. It's a world in which organized crime is weaponized and uses an instrument of statecraft. It's, it's a world in which polarization and low public trust 
is encouraged in target countries. And, and to, in order to combat disinformation and propaganda, you have to deal with the whole ecosystem not just one aspect of it. So these are the three kind of problem areas, Daniela, that I wanted to kind of throw out there in order to frame this. But what I want to do with you is like look at four battlefields inside Russia, in the former Soviet space, in, for lack of a better term, the global West and the global South. So let's, let's start, Daniela, with inside Russia. I know you have a lot of thoughts on this and your, your primary audience is inside Russia. So how do you, let's start with that and then we'll move through the other three and then throw it out, throw it open for questions. Brian, thank you very much indeed. Uh, uh, sincerely, I believe that we have like 45 minutes sprint and you just promised to our audience some, some sort of a marathon. We can do it. Come on, we're uh, pros. But, 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 but anyway, yes, you're absolutely right that I would start with the propaganda inside Russia because when I was kind of coming up with the name of this panel, Piercing the Armor of Russian Propaganda, then I myself found a controversy in this name, like how you, you, you can, how can you pierce the, the something which is a structure of a jellyfish, because, because Russian propaganda is very flexible, it's very, it, it exists for years, for decades, and, but at the same time, it is logical, because uh, Russian authorities, first what they did, they, they started to build an armor around the brains of average Russians, so the truthful information, the information which is even um, you, you, you questioning the, how to say, the way to balance the information, but even balanced information is very difficult to penetrate this armor because it's already stuffed with propaganda. It's already bra brainwashed. The thing is that I just should remind that from his first days, Mr. Putin started to propagandize uh, Russian population. I mean, when uh, Second War, Second War in Chechnya started, they, in difference with Yeltsin times, they uh, organized the special so-called Russian Information Center, and for all Russian media was an obligation to. Uh, rebroadcast what this Russian information center is saying about war, war in Chechnya, that it is, it is a special counter-terrorist operation, that every terrorist in the world are now in our northern Caucasus trying to destabilize Chechnya and Dagestan and everything. And the channel which didn't agree to do that, the NTV channel, was disbanded in the first year of Putin's uh, presidency. And it was, it's been uh, really in operation. Uh, you probably remember the time when uh, Putin was uh, like meeting face to face with NTV correspondents, denied that it's his initiative. And later we learned that, yes, it was his initiative. And I remember the arrest of Vladimir Gusinski, no, Vladimir, the owner of yeah, And the arrest of Vladimir Gusinski. And uh, so uh, Russia was building almost immediately a propaganda machine inside the country for the people. Like, uh, for example, uh, um, initiating disbelief in local elections when Putin started to say that local elections, elections of regional governors is, is not something which is good. Or like uh, the formation of upper house of Russian parliament. 
which was uh, at that time representing actually the president or and the head of uh, legislative organ of, of the republic. It's not also good and so on. He, then he portrayed every critic of Kremlin like Berezovsky who became a Kremlin critic mm-hmm. uh, around 2002 as an enemy of the state. And only in 2005, uh, Kremlin came up with the idea of Russia today. So at least four years, uh, Putin spent uh, for the propaganda uh, on his own people. So they were they were honing the skills, if you will, of course, at home of before this was turned out on an unsuspecting. And place. it turns really nasty d- during the the annexation of Crimea. I remember myself that I I could like feel the change of the tone of Russian propaganda and the, how to say, the uh, wave of this, wave of this Mm -hmm. hatred, wave of this dehumanization of Ukrainians, which started right after uh, active Russian uh, steps in annexing Crimea and waging the war uh, with help of separatists on the the, uh, east of of Ukraine and so on. So this is... Uh, you, you should imagine that. Is it me? So we we should imagine that that uh, the propaganda role of the propaganda, especially in this war of Russia against Ukraine, is huge. I remember it was a year ago when I spoke with uh, the uh, chairman of uh, the national. Uh, National uh, Union of Journalists of Ukraine, Sergei Tomilenko. And a year ago, he said that Russian propaganda um, activists like Solovyov, like Simonyan, they should be under the same tribunal as uh, Russian war criminals because eight years since 2014, they were dehumanizing Ukrainians. So, so, So Russian society indeed was somehow prepared for this war because of this eight years of propaganda, at least. Now, I see I see several watersheds in terms of the domestic pro- uh, progression of this and then the movement of it first into the former Soviet space and then farther west. You mentioned the arrest of Vladimir Gusinsky, the takeover of NTV. That was a watershed. The arrest of Mikhail Khodorkovsky. In, um, in, in October of 2003, and then the Beslan massacre in 2004, Daniela, which led to the, 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 the elimination of the uh, free election of governors in, in, in the Russian Indeed, regions. Yes. And now you're shifting into the, into the former Soviet space. And, you know, before we had the Ukrainian fascists, we had the Georgian genocide. Right. If you remember back to the war, and this is when I noticed something but even very, be- very different going but on. But even before that, we had Estonia with yes. so-called bronze soldier. Yes. We had actually an attack to Estonian cyber cyberspace. Yeah. And I just recently spoke with former Estonian president. Thomas Hendrik Elwes, who remembered that at that time, the attack to Estonian cyberspace was not taken seriously by anyone. And, and, and all uh, warriors of, of Baltic states were not registered, uh, as he said. So, I mean, every time 
there were enemies outside. Mm -hmm. And every time, at least uh, since 2007, at, at least from, from famous Putin's Munich speech, was the, um, how to say, the propaganda of, of foreign enemies which are preventing Russia to develop and, and all that stuff. Well, in, when, I, when I noticed just something really crazy and over the top starting to go on, I got to remember to speak into the microphone as I was reminded to, um, was 2008 when, when, when the invasion of Georgia took place and they were accusing Mikhail Saakashvili of committing genocide. Now we can all, reasonable people can have reasonable disagreements about the former president of the Republic of Georgia, but we can all agree that Georgia was not committing genocide, but this was this was being blared out on you know uh, on, on Russian television, both domestically and abroad, and in, on Russia today. I mean, in fact, I remember the big behind the, the anchors, you know, the, there was this big sign that said in giant letters "genocide," and I remember watching this and saying, "My God, something's changed." But also, I remember absolutely different experience that at that time, you remember that before that, there were uh, a huge campaign against Georgian inside Russia. And there was also a solidarity campaign when Russians, some of them at least, uh, uh, carrying the pins with, with I am Georgian. Yeah. And this was the first attempt, at least it was in the middle of 2000s. And at that time, it was an attempt of Russian civic society to, how to say, to counter Russian propaganda, which we don't see uh, in this scale with the Ukrainian war. So uh, we need to understand the results of this propaganda and how to change, uh, change this result. Because as, as I believe, uh, everything w what could influence the war in Ukraine now should go from the inside of Russia as well. Yeah, and this shows me that Russian civil society is in a very different place it is now than it was in 2008, of course, right? There's yes. much more fear. Um, people are, they're, they're, the, the propaganda has gotten much more stronger and much more effective domestically. There are many, there are fewer sources of alternative information in Russia right now. We don't have Dosh TV anymore. We don't have Echo Moskvi anymore. We don't have Nova Gazeta anymore. So we're missing a, a lot of the, the only alternative sources of information are folks like you at VOA and my former colleagues at RFE, um, but these are easy to discredit from Putin's perspective because these are foreigners, right? Or at least can be portrayed as, as, as foreigners or foreign agents. I want to drill into the narratives that the, that, 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 that the Putin regime was beginning to push because he went through the domestic narratives. What were some of the narratives that the Putin regime began to push in the former Soviet space in places like Ukraine and Georgia at this time? Uh, you mean now or, or starting like... And starting when we began to see this, this campaign move into the former Soviet states. We, we, we saw the kind of, the, the tools kind of honed and the, the knives sharpened domestically. Then they began, then they were turned on the former Soviet space and later on the West. And I want to get to the West in a moment. But how do you see, what do you see in the former Soviet space? What kind of narratives did you see course, them trying to push? Of course, the first thing what Putin did, the, he weaponized the Russian communities inside of these countries. Then... Uh, it's always been very, very convenient for Putin to present this, this Russian communities as suppressed. I remember covering uh, Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe 
and Russian delegation all the time came up with uh, human rights in Latvia, human rights in Estonia, and everything. And of course, it was immediately used for the propaganda. So uh, we now see that Russian communities in former USSR countries are much more under uh, Russian propaganda than, than it was before. And actually, not only, I mean, I mean, for example, in Germany, local population is also much more and more under Russian propaganda, even if they see the real results of this war of Russia against Ukraine. Uh, just recently, I saw that belief amongst Germans that uh, Putin is fighting world elite mm -hmm. is just rising from from 12 percent to 18 percent. So, uh, as as previous uh, panelists said, and I agree with that, Russia is not losing information war now and propaganda war now. Now, in, in this strategy worked in former Soviet states that had large either ethnic Russian or Russophone populations, right? So this will work in some of the Baltic states. This will work in Ukraine and Belarus. But then when in, in countries that didn't have large ethnic Russian populations or even moderate ethnic Russian populations, they switched to another tactic. They started to focus on more social and cultural issues, if you will. It was at this time when we began to see a country like Georgia, for example, pro-Western, wants to join NATO, wants to join Europe, but at the same time, a deeply religious Orthodox Christian country where people, parts of the population were uneasy with things like LGBTQ rights and things like feminism. So did you see a, a shift into using these social cultural wedge issues in, in, in parts of the former Soviet Union? Very much. I mean, I mean, uh, I just remind that to you that, that R Russia created this Russian World Foundation all, also in the middle of 2000s. And one of the roles of this Russia, Russian World Foundation in, in these countries was to support tr so-called traditional values. Mm -hmm. So uh, the defenders of these values could see uh, Russian, even official structures like Ros Satrudnichistvo, which mm -hmm. is which is Russian Committee for Cooperation in 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 former USSR countries, as as an ally. As, as somebody who they share, again, common values, and, and they see Moscow as really, you know, on their side in, in this, uh, not exactly ethnic, but maybe maybe uh, the, the clash of values, yes, as you say. You know, it's a classic wedge issue. A wedge issue is, is, is an issue that divides your opponents and unites your supporters, right? And this is something I, I saw, and I saw this out of a Kremlin white paper that was published back in 2013, which is actually encouraging the Kremlin to use these issues as wedges. So you have a country like Georgia or Ukraine that seeks to move west, and you use these wedge issues because you might have people who are Western oriented, but are also culturally conservative. And you, you, you make this argument, if you go to Europe, this is what you're going to have. And, and um, it was, it was effective to a degree in, in, in Georgia and, and elsewhere. But it, it's not effective anymore in Ukraine. No. Because, because I mean, uh, my father was from Kharkiv and Kharkiv in Ukraine is um, Ukrainian and Russian-speaking city. And I could say that, for example, in 2014, there were forces in Kharkiv 
which were definitely pro-Russian, and everybody knows that. And since the beginning of the war, I mean, I mean this open war, Kharkiv turned into completely pro-Ukrainian mm -hmm. city. So, so Putin did the war's job for himself, doing uh, the, with this aggression the uh, how to say the devastation which he put on on Russian-speaking uh, population right. of Ukraine. So it doesn't work there anymore. But this is the result of the war. It's not the result of the information policy. And I'm I'm wondering what. Those of us that are trying to, to battle this, whether we are in media or in the think tank community or in academia or, or, or in the policy world, how do we push back against this? Did we, what can we learn from we what we've to, seen up until we, now? We need to define against what. Because if he's still promoting Russian world now, after a year of war, everybody sees what the Russian world is. It's Bucha. Mm. It's Gastomel. Mm. It's, it's it's a lot of victims. It's 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 torture chambers. It's genocide. It, it is genocide. As yeah, it's it's in in many ways, and and they, even U.S. lawyers now say that there are bases for genocide. But I mean, what what else we should push back on? If uh, we should push back on, on this uncertainty that. Uh, for example, Russian officials and Russian media are trying to push into the world that it's not all that clear. So we have, uh, we had troubles with Ukraine for years. It's NATO which pushed it in, into the war. It, it, it also doesn't work anymore because you, you remember how uh, Minister Sergei Lavrov just recently had been left mm -hmm. uh, when he was saying we didn't start the war. The, what, what we need to do is to initiate the process of doubts and thinking in R Russians themselves. And this is what Voice of America Russian Service is trying to do. Mm. So my podcast, for example, which, which, is, which has the name Ukraine, the most important, we have this uh, part of the news, hard news, that uh, Russia is uh, shelling and bombing Ukrainian cities. We, we just give it as, as a normal, uh, I would say, war news chronicle, but it speaks for, for itself because at the same time we, we, we speak about you know, killing of children, shelling of hospitals and, and, and many other uh, civic infrastructure. So it works somehow. And then uh, we debunk some of Russian uh, propaganda. When they say, for example, if they say that Russian economy is still working, we give an examples, just just pure examples. Mm -hmm. How many companies left Russia? How many uh, organizations stopped working with Russia, and so on. And and that it, it's really costly for for Russian budget. So I, I think it works. And if you ask about the ways how we push back. The giving the factual information and debunking uh, some most, how to say, mm. uh, explicit narratives of, of, of uh, Russian propaganda, it should work. You were worried about the sprint in the marathon, and we're sprinting right along in, in this marathon, Daniela. We've gotten through two of the two of the kind of four points I wanted to get through. But before I, before I move on, I kind of want to put you on the spot about this piece about inside Russia and the former Soviet Union, two distinctive things, but you're, you're working in an area that broadcasts to these two places primarily, right? What should we be doing that we aren't doing? 
What should we be doing differently than the way we're doing it now? What advice, if you were in charge of U.S. international broadcasting, what would you say? What should we be doing? I would, <clears throat> I would recall the name, which is for many is controversial, still controversial, although he's a political prisoner and he is in jail for more than a year and so on, more than two years. We have to do, we need to do more work uh, like Navalny does, like like Alexei Navalny does. I mean, we need to expose uh, how Russian elite is making money on this war. We need to expose uh, how Russian uh, military officials not informing their families about the conditions and in everything. We need to inform Russian public. Uh, so the taxes they pay are coming to this this um, rockets and in everything which is which are shelling uh, Ukrainian civic infrastructure and so on. I think we, we we should do exactly this. So that's inside of Russia. Be more like Navalny. Basically, hit them in their weak spot. Expose them for what they are with humor. Um, because yes, Navalny yes, is really good I mean, good I completely this. agree with previous panelists when 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 Dr. Stradner said that we we should produce much more memes. Mm -hmm. Just 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 please every day. No humor is very very effective. I mean, I'm a big fan of of of, of course of of of, uh, of NAFTA, but I'm also a big fan of Darth Putin KGB and Soviet Sergei and all of these 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 Twitter feeds that are extraordinarily. Um, uh, effective. Um, and I think we all need to get a bit more aggressive and a bit more kind of thinking outside of the box in the way we're doing this, not being afraid to be unconventional and to use humor. Which, which probably means creative, uh, creating the, the teams of creative people yep. working specifically on that. Because I do remember, and tomorrow we will speak about the mm -hmm. DJ who brought down yep. the USSR, and Sievan of Garotsev, the legendary D DJ of the BBC, he did it with, 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 with such a humor. So, so and, and Putin hates to be, to be joked about. Yeah, yeah no, and a lot, I mean, I think in this, it requires, and you know, fo folks our age, um, we, we have to kind of pass the torch in a lot of ways to a younger generation. Because if you look at the, I mean, the very clever things I see going on kind of inside the American body politic, um, these Gen Zers put this thing out, birds aren't real, which is kind of making fun of conspiracy theories. It's hilarious. And it's really, really effective. And I think these kinds of things could potentially work in the Russian market. What about the former Soviet space? Do you think we should be doing anything different than what we're uh, there than what we're doing now? Anything we're not doing, we should be doing? Well, I should say that Soviet space is now scared enough of Russia because I see what Kazakhstan is doing. Mm -hmm. For example, Kazakhstan was always pro-Russian country. I mean, Nazarbayev, he mm -hmm. had his own agenda, but he was friend of Yeltsin and Putin. And, and uh, uh, the president now, Kasim Jamar Takayev, is trying to crawl, crawl out of Russia in, in all ways. Even though Putin saved his bacon by sending those yes. CSTO troops there. Yes. And, 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 and this, is, this is also, that was funny when Putin was uh, tried to kind of gather them again, 
presenting them with rings. Mm. You remember that yep. the, the uh, Commonwealth, he, he gathered this unofficial Commonwealth of Independent States mm. summit in St. Petersburg and he gave them rings. I wonder if Kasim Jamar Takayev will wear it. Will wear this ring. Yeah. No, one thing I'm noticing, Daniel, is I see Russian influence waning in, ver in, in many different places. Georgia just withdrew the, the, uh, the foreign agent law that was modeled on the Russian law. And incidentally, I don't know if you saw, but the Russian foreign ministry had a tweet warning the Georgians, remember what happened to Ukraine. They practically threatened in public to invade Georgia again, right? That's not going to help their cause. Armenia is distancing itself from Russia. Um, because Russia did not help Armenia when they were attacked by Azerbaijan. Moldova is moving rapidly toward the West under Maya Sandu's very which, competent which is, Which is co completely no surprise, because in the very beginning, like two, two years ago, Moldovan government was more or less prepared to speak with Russians. And, and in response, mm -hmm. Russian propaganda and Russian politicians started to uh, start the, the actually almost violent clashes in, mm. in, in Moldova sure, yeah. and, and demonstrations and so on. That's what I wanted to say, that Russian officials now working successfully against Russian interests in propaganda field as well. Because, for example, when you say that Russians threaten Georgians... Uh, and threaten uh, Armenians. This is exactly what they did with uh, Kazakhstan, with yeah. Kazakhstan and Moldova. And they got a very harsh response from, from Kazakh foreign ministry saying that don't, don't tell us what to do. So we, you, you kind of see Russia kind of back on its heels in a lot of the former Soviet space. How should our information policy deal with this now? How, what, what's the message in order to, because the Russian propaganda is not going to stop in those places. Um, and sh sh how, how do we push our advantage now? I think it's a lot what depends from U.S. diplomacy, mm -hmm. because uh, this country is for, former Soviet countries should not be just left behind, forgotten and everything that uh, U.S. hard diplomacy mm -hmm. should work more with Kazakhstan, with all this, with Turkmenistan, for mm -hmm. example, with Tajikistan, to reduce Russian influence. Although, as I said, Russia reduced its own influence seriously by, by this war. But um, also in, in, in the matter of, of uh, media, we should again have... Uh, we have to expose Russian uh, crimes, ru Russian uh, intentions towards these countries in our broadcast. So uh, I think we need much more efforts in this former Soviet space too now. No, I'm watching the clock very closely. I remember back from our days at RFE, they told us the clock is our friend. I've been watching it closely because it is my friend. We've got 15 minutes left, and I, wanna, I do want to leave time for questions because I think there's going to be a, a, a lot of questions for you, Daniela. But two things I wanted to touch on before we do this. Russian propaganda in the West and Russian propaganda in the global South. Any thoughts on, on either of those? or both of them? Uh, Russian propaganda in the West is unfortunately more or less successful. We can see how Russian propaganda is playing on uh, controversies in, in, in American society, in, as I mentioned, mm -hmm. in Germany. Mm -hmm. And I think that e there should be a combination of uh, hard measures like, mm -hmm. like 
like direct ban of RT because RT was catched on was caught off of spreading lies and disinformation. Mm -hmm. You know what British government, for example, did against RT, and together to counter its propaganda with the facts and with uh, probably something which previous panelists suggested that uh, how to say. Uh, be more sophisticated in our approach to their propaganda, to to expose it with not not only directly with with truth and facts, but also with the reminder of Russians' own uh, failures. For example, I give you uh, in 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 the latest edition of Russian uh, foreign policy doctrine, it is almost no mentioning of NATO. Mm -hmm. Why? Because Putin just failed with the expansion of NATO, and mm. Finland joined the NATO, and uh, a border just doubled. So they don't want to use word NATO anymore. They, they use lost. they use Anglo-Saxi. They use uh, you, you know sphere of influence of of United States and so on. They don't want to threat Russian people with NATO expansion. Expansion is already here. Mm -hmm. so, so that's that's how we should do. I mean, I mean, just to remind Russians and non-Russians that yes, what Putin uh, Putin had what what he had coming with, with NATO, for example, and and to, to repeat it in many other uh, areas like economy, uh, like relations with with neighboring countries and real intentions and so on. That's what we should do. Now, when I look at the kind of the, 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 the U.S. political spectrum and the success or lack thereof of Russian propaganda, the way I always describe it, is, and we're in Texas, so we can use a football metaphor here. Um, I think we're right next to the UT football stadium, apparently. The area between the 20-yard lines is fine, right? When we look at support for Ukraine, the area between the 20-yard lines is okay. There's problems in the red zone, if you will. Um, it, it, because on the extremes of the left and the right, you have problems. Putin's message, which kind of is faux social conservatism, because I don't believe he believes in this at all, is appeals to the right. And his anti-imperialist message, which is laughable for anybody that knows anything about Russia, but it does appeal to some naive elements on the left, right? So this is, this is like where we're at. And as long as it stays like that, I think we're okay. I mean, this is what I tell my Ukrainian friends, at least. As long as it stays, as long as that area between the 20-yard lines, I'd like it to see between the 10-yard lines. That would be my... Per but what, how do we... How, what, do you have any thoughts on that? That's a question, actually, because uh, if we, again, and I want to mention Germany, if we will have alternative for Germany, having more and more space in German politics... And Der Linke. Yes. Because right? you and have, again, it's and, a very similar. Very similar. Then, of course... The expansion of Putin propaganda and Putin points of view will be more palpable. Right. I mean, so first, of course, probably uh, media and government and um, these ten yards, as you say, mm. should uh, or twenty should uh, make more efforts to counter uh, the 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 propaganda from that. Uh, mm. You know, extremes because because they are already full of Putin's narratives. Right. So uh, I mean, when when we fight them, we 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 fight Putin inevitably. Right. No, I mean there is there is work we need to do on both 
the far left and the far right to kind of counter these narratives. They're different narratives. They're actually contradictory narratives, but that doesn't matter to Putin. Contradictory narratives never matter. We've got 10 minutes to go. Just last thoughts on the global South. I know it deserves more time than this, but we got a lot of work to do in the global South. I'll tell you that much, because I think this is where the Russian narratives are the most successful by far. This is very difficult because, for example, what I see is that Western countries, for now, they don't have strategy for Africa. Right. And Putin does. He will uh, convene a second uh, Russia-Africa summit. Mm-hmm. At least he has plans for it next year. He has support or... The vice president just went to Africa. The yes, Secretary of yes, State yes, recently yes. went. The before, First Lady went. Lavrov before him and so on. I mean, I mean, I mean, yes, from here, but, but Lavrov was mm-hmm. very active in sub-Saharan Africa and so on. And we see uh, the operation of Wagner Group there, mm-hmm. which are together military and propaganda operations. And I think uh, United States... And Western allies should come up with a strategy, an information strategy towards African countries should be a big part of it. All right. Thank you, Daniel. We have eight minutes and 43 seconds to go. Um, And I'm going to open it up for questions now because I'm sure there's a lot of uh, a lot of questions for you out here. Um, Or maybe not. (laughs) Did I stop too soon? Yes, I see back in, in the back there. And I see I see over. I see. Okay, one, two, three. So I got three questions. That's good. Hi, good afternoon. And thank you so much for being with with us here. I was wondering, we've talked a lot about getting the Western and specifically the American narrative to Russian audiences, but given the difficulty at which the current information climate is for Russians living in Russia, um, with so many social media companies blocked that I think Americans would traditionally use Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, what instruments does the U.S. government have at its disposal to actually, or what mediums, I should say, can we use and are we not using to get those messages over to Russian citizens themselves? That's a great That's a great question. There was a time when it was blue yeah. jeans and jazz and rock and roll did the trick, but that doesn't do the trick anymore. Yeah, the uh, every my podcast is usually ended with, please subscribe to us on Google and Apple platform. And also you can you can listen to us on the website of the Voice of America. But yes, the website of the Voice of America Russian service is blocked in Russia. The thing is that uh, a lot of Russians um, use VPN now to, to get the information. And what we really need is the motivation for them more and more to use it. Because information, you cannot block it completely, but you need... Uh, to create a motivation in the in in Russian population to have it, and that's that's what I think the the main goal for us. No, oh, it's a it's a tricky question. Uh, we got two more over here. This gentleman here and this uh, lady up here. Yeah. Hi, Jess Dawson from the Army Cyber Institute. You brought up a point earlier that I thought was a really critical one, and I wondered if you could could go back to it a little bit. You mentioned that Putin has set himself up as, you know, this vanguard of the West of traditional values, and we're seeing a lot of this idea of, of men's supremacy and the incels and all of that really gaining traction in the younger generation here in the United States. How do we push back on this idea that is a very powerful idea for men who feel like they're being left behind? That is really a lot of the allure, I think. And I don't know that we're doing a good enough job to push back on that. 
Yeah, no, Putin has kind of become the, the, the global spokesperson for toxic masculinity. I mean, the way it was once put by my good friend Peter Pomerantsev is he's turned himself into the Che Guevara of the global far right. How do you, I mean, but this, this, this question about like men who feel like they're being left behind and Putin turning himself into this champion of masculinity, how would, do you have any thoughts on that? I think that he is not exactly successful uh, now in positioning himself he's losing. in this role because he's losing first and because, you know, everyone who would expose his, his personal affairs would understand that he is not exactly the model for either, you know, family values or, or, or whatever is around family values. Uh, so... Um, yes, again, uh, he is attractive for many because uh, the like uh, superficial level of, of this propaganda presents him as, as a macho and so on. But you know, one one level deeper, in the end, and you see it. We just need to expose it more. And yeah. Um, Matthew or Eurasia analyst at Rain. Um, so you, uh, Brian asked you what could you know places like VOA be doing differently, and you said we need to be more like Navalny. And I thought that that was an absolutely fascinating idea. Uh, so I'd, I'd like you to say more about that, and I guess specifically, you know, w what are what are the obstructions to that? I mean, my my kind of response is what's what's stopping you? Um, what are the difficulties? Would you, I mean, is it what 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 like what are the obstacles that would obstruct you from being able to do that or do it earlier? Um. I can tell you my personal op uh, obstacles. I've been working as a VOA correspondent for Russian service until October of 2017, when Russian government labeled us as a foreign agents, and foreign agents in Russia means you're a spy. So I've been tipped by a friend of mine that I should think of leaving the country because they could take my red Russian passport because I'm still Russian citizen uh, and first make me a suspect and then a scapegoat. So the problem is with reporting from inside Russia. But still, we have a lot of independent Russian media who, uh, which, which, which actually uh, does the job. I mean, Medusa, for example, and investigative journalism uh, despite everything, is flourishing now. The thing is, uh, as Navalny's experience shows and as independent media experience shows, it does not necessarily move Russian public completely from the war. But uh, why I concentrated about mentioning Navalny, that Navalny exposed uh, all these controversies inside inside the Russian society, which should influence the the uh, how to say the the mindset of of ordinary Russian, which should start how to say uh, themselves questioning the the reality. Because until they question the reality, everything will stay the same. Yeah, no, and I would add to that what Navalny does. I mean, he hits them in their weakest spot. But he does it in such an engaging, nothing actually funny way. Nothing actually prevents us to do so. I mean, I mean, for example, uh, uh, now Russian um, officials are 
you know, blaming Ukraine for neo-Nazi things. So like about four or five years ago, I published an article uh, proving that neo-Nazis in the United States were had connections with Russian Slavic corps in, in, in core in, in, in Russia. And then the State Department actually um, sanctioned this organization. So, so I mean, uh, we still can do this investigative job. We still can do it. We, we just need to concentrate more more on what is important for Russians themselves, as Navalny does. The last question goes to the distinguished gentleman from the great state of California via Scotland. <laughs> Thank you. Um, uh, uh, Daniela, uh, I wonder, uh, well, before this uh, panel, you and I were talking about uh, broadcasting in the Cold War and what the rules were for Britain around talking about Russian leadership. And I wonder, how do you think Western broadcasters should approach the feeling that Russians have for, for Putin? Does it make sense for uh, a mockery of him to be off limits? Or what sort of tone should, uh, do you think that um, the broadcasters should uh, adopt? Uh, this is interesting. Yeah, I think mockery should be off limits completely. I mean, mockery should be should be no. I mean, mockery should be without any limits to, towards him because because Stalin was percepted as unreachable, mighty tsar and and the founder of the state and some some saint guy. Putin is, uh, I think, in 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 the minds of many Russians, is a lucky guy. Lucky guy like you and me who was in St. Petersburg, who sometimes uses criminal language. He's, he's very close to people. He's, he's all against this Western, you know, elite and so on. So if we will mock him more, I think it, it will help more. Uh, I don't think we, we should have any barriers in that. Indifference with Stalin time. I love that we're wrapping it up on mocking Putin. That is absolutely beautiful. Give it up for Daniela. I thought this was uh, a lot of fun. Thank you very much. <laughs>